0: Well, about 100 years ago, there was a man by the name of Frank Morrison, and he, like many, was very skeptical about the historicity of Jesus and surely the historicity and reality of the resurrection. At the start of his book, he makes this statement. When as a very young man, I first began seriously to study the life of Christ, I did so with a very definite feeling that if I may so put it, His history rested upon very insecure foundations. He wasn't convinced of the historicity of Jesus, certainly not convinced that the resurrection was a fact of history. But at the very end of his book, he says this, there may be, and as the writer thinks, there certainly is a deep and profoundly historical basis for that much disputed sentence in the Apostles' Creed The third day, he rose again from the dead. He researched and ended up writing a book entitled Who Moved the Stone, believing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-established facts of history. Brothers and sisters, as you know, the resurrection is at the heart of our faith as Christians. There is no question that I or you or anyone No more important to answer in this life than, is Jesus of Nazareth alive today because he was raised from the grave? Or is this the greatest hoax ever perpetrated upon the human race, that Jesus was resurrected? Would you consider with me this morning two things? We want to look at the important place of the resurrection of Jesus, and then the indisputable proof of the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, the important place of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may turn for a few minutes, if you care to, to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, and we read at the very end of Romans chapter 4 this statement, "'He, Christ, who was delivered over because of our transgressions,' that speaks of the cross, "'and was raised because of our justification.'" He was raised because of or for our justification. Now, what is justification? Many of you know. Justification is that big theological word that contains such an essential truth. It is God as judge pronouncing as righteous in his sight those who are otherwise sinners. God justifies, declares righteous, considers righteous those who are in themselves not righteous. It is the opposite of condemnation. And in the Bible, justification is the result of simple faith in Jesus Christ, not the result of works. Earlier in chapter 4, we have the example of Abraham in verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That Old Testament Saint Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. He was made right with God, not on the basis of works that he had done, but simply on the basis of his faith, his belief in God, and his belief in a savior to come. He goes on to use David as another example of justification by faith. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and those whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Likewise, David was made right with God, not based on works, but based on his faith in God. He, was, he, was, he had the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to him. Justification is the forgiveness of our sins and the crediting to us of the righteousness of Christ. Now, what's the connection between justification And the resurrection of Jesus, because Paul says he was raised for our justification. What's the connection? The connection is this. By raising Jesus from the dead, God was validating his claims. Jesus Christ claimed to be the Savior. He claimed to come and to die in the place of sinners so that by faith in him, we would be forgiven. He claimed to be the only Savior. No man comes to the Father but through me. But if he had died and gone to the grave and stayed there, his promises and his claims would not have been proven as true. But when God raised him from the dead, God was saying, I am validating from heaven that the claims of my son are true. By this supernatural validation of the resurrection I am accepting what he has claimed to do for sinners. In other words, by raising him from the dead, God was, as it were, giving us a receipt. Jesus claimed to pay for our sins. If your faith is in him, he has made payment in full for your sins. You will never have to pay for your sins. The proof of it, the receipt given by God the Father, is that God raised him from the dead. So our justification, the forgiveness of our sins, depends on the resurrection of Jesus. But not only that, The power to be changed depends on the resurrection of Jesus. If you turn two chapters over to chapter 6 of Romans, we read this in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The Bible teaches that sin not only renders us guilty before God, it also makes us slaves. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. As a result of Adam's fall, everyone in the human race has a bent toward evil. At the root, at the core of our being, is selfishness and pride. And out of those roots come all kinds of bitter fruits, sinful anger, jealousy, envy, sexual lust, lying, theft, hatred, disobedience to authority, malice, gossip, love of pleasure, boastfulness, false worship, and and any other sin in the catalogs of sin all flow out of our sinful nature. And friends, we cannot just stop being what we are. Changing us at the root of our being is not simply a matter of turning over a new leaf. It's not a matter of simply making New Year's resolutions. It's not simply a matter of, of, you know, of saying, just say no. The stamp of sin is so deeply imprinted upon us that we cannot change ourselves at the root of our being. Now, we can make some outward reforms in our lives, but at the core of our being, the bent towards sin, we cannot change. But according to Romans 6, 4, there is a power that is at work within us that frees us from the dominion, the slavery of sin, and progressively enables us to part from sin and to pursue righteousness and holiness. And that power is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So not only is our justification, our forgiveness, dependent on the resurrection of Jesus, but our sanctification depends on the resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, there is no power within us to change. But then also, the resurrection of our bodies depends on the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ is said to be the first fruits of the resurrection. Listen to verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. When a farmer brings in the first fruits, the first sheaves, the first whatever of of the harvest, it's an indication that there's a whole harvest out in the field waiting to come. Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits, indicating that there's a whole harvest field of people who will one day be resurrected like He was. And that's those who believe in Him. We will be resurrected to a resurrection of life and we will one day possess a body like He had and has in His resurrection. So do you see, for believers, our whole salvation depends on the resurrection of Jesus. Our justification, our sanctification, and our ultimate glorification depends on the fact that Jesus is alive. If Jesus was not raised, You are not forgiven. You are still in your sins. Whatever power has been at work in you to change is the power of self-will, and you might as well be a follower of a self-help religion such as Joel Osteen, and you have no guarantee that you will ever live forever with a glorified resurrected body if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So important is the resurrection of Jesus. Our whole salvation, every stage of it depends on it. But if you're not a believer in Jesus... Why is the resurrection important to you? When Paul was speaking to the Athenians on Mars Hill, recorded in Acts 17, these were idol worshipers, he said this, among other things, to them, because he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is saying there's going to be a judgment day and the one who is going to be the judge in that day is this certain man whom God raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is going to be your judge and my judge in the final day. And so everything will depend in the judgment on what you have done with Jesus. Do you believe that He is a risen, living Savior in which case you will have eternal life. If you deny and reject the resurrection of Jesus, then He will not be your Savior in that day. He will be your judge in that day. So it is crucial to all of us as to whether the resurrection of Jesus is true or not. And for the rest of our time, we're going to establish the fact that there is indisputable proof for the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. And I begin with this an inexplicably empty tomb, a tomb that was empty without any rational explanation. You see, the fact that the tomb was empty after Jesus was put in it is a fact that has not been disputed in history. Neither the New Testament nor any outside writings assert that the body of Jesus remained in the tomb. Frank Morrison notes, And I will be quoting him quite a bit because I I really have enjoyed his clear reasoning and his eloquent language. So I'm going to be making quotes more than typical. I hope you will enjoy the eloquent power of the quotes from this man who became utterly convinced that Jesus' resurrection was a fact of history. He says in this case in all the fragments and echoes of this far-off controversy which have come down to us, we are nowhere told that any responsible person asserted that the body of Jesus was still in the tomb. We are only given reasons why it is not there. You follow that? Nobody has ever said his body was still in the tomb. But there are multiple reasons put forth as to what happened to the body. Here are some of them. One is that Joseph of Arimathea secretly moved the body. We know from the Gospels that Jesus was buried in the tomb of this man who was a wealthy member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea. We read in Matthew 27, 57 to 58. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. The thought has been that Joseph offered to have Jesus laid in his tomb because it was conveniently close to the scene of crucifixion, and he intended later to transfer it to a more permanent location. But what are the problems with that? The problems with the fact that Joseph of Arimathea moved the body of Jesus. Well, first of all, he didn't have sufficient time between the close of the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday night and the coming of the women early on Sunday morning. We read in the scriptures that, uh, that very early on the first day they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. John's gospel tells us they came to the tomb when it was still dark. Frank Morrison again says this, we have to think of a party of men operating with lamps or torches, working under the maximum difficulties, picking their way through the unlighted regions beyond the city wall, carrying a heavy body, probably for some considerable distance, and depositing it in another grave. We have to think of them going to the trouble of removing all the grave clothes First, leaving these in the tomb and removing the naked body to its destination. And we have to regard them as either forgetting to close the door of the old tomb or not wishing for the moment to waste time by doing so. Further, Joseph did not have any motivation to move the body of Jesus. Some say that he was really in in the employ of the Sanhedrin and he wanted to comply with the Jewish law and uh, along with the, the Sanhedrin's orders and to have the body of Jesus uh, buried before sunset. But if that was the case, he would have been concerned about the bodies of the two thieves as well. But that was not his motivation. He wasn't working for the Sanhedrin. We're told that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. And the reason he had Jesus buried in his tomb was as an act of, of, of service and worship to this one he regarded at least as a great teacher and perhaps as the Savior. But the death knell to this idea that that Joseph of Arimathea moved the body is this. Within a seven-week period, the disciples of Jesus had come back to Jerusalem, likely after the crucifixion they had fled to the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And then seven weeks later they came back to Jerusalem And what was the centerpiece of their bold proclamation? Peter, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Jesus the Nazarene, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. One chapter later, as Peter and John heal a crippled man outside the temple, Peter begins to preach, but you disowned the holy and righteous one, put to death the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead to which we are witnesses. Chapter later, when they are brought before that austere body, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the very ones who had counseled to kill Jesus and had the power to kill them, Peter and John come before them and they say, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, in this name this man stands before you in good health. You see, if Joseph had moved the body of Jesus, the priests, the, the religious leaders would have known about it. And the fact that the body had been removed would have silenced the disciples and their bold claim about him being risen. So there's no way that Joseph of Arimathea would have moved the body of Jesus. The other theory is that either the Jewish or the Roman authorities moved the body. The first objection is that the Jewish leaders requested The very opposite. They knew that he had claimed that he would rise again. And so the Pharisees meet with Pilate and they say to Pilate, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. The Jews didn't want the body moved. They wanted to make sure that the body stayed there to invalidate the claims of Jesus that he would rise after three days. Also, after the body did turn up missing, we read in Matthew 28 that some of the Roman guard who were assigned to the tomb came to the Jewish leaders and told them what had happened. And the Jewish leaders, it says this, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But if the body of Jesus had been moved by the Jewish authorities, they wouldn't have had to, perpetuate this lie. They would have just reported that, oh, we, we moved the body. But conclusively, all the authorities, all the Jewish or Roman authorities would have had to do is to produce the body of Jesus or point to the tomb where it still lay. And as one had said, has said, it would have killed Christianity, not in the cradle, but in the womb. The Christian faith never would have gotten off the ground. Just produce the body, and it's over. The other possible theory is that the disciples stole the body. That was what the chief priest paid the Roman guard to say with the promise that we'll protect you from the Roman authorities because if you fell asleep, the penalty would be death. We'll we'll intercede for you so that you won't have to die. Well, it's pretty silly to consider that the disciples stole the body for several reasons. So, they're to say that they fell asleep and while they were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. Well, guess what? When you're asleep, you don't know what happened, right? First of all, according to the historical account, what really happened? Well, Matthew does tell us in Matthew 28, this is what the guard reported and and. Nobody refuted what they said. Matthew 28, 1-4. This is what really happened at the tomb of Jesus. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. That is what really happened. But what about the idea that the disciples might have stolen the body? First consider the physical impossibility of that. There was a Roman guard stationed at the tomb. That consisted of at least four Roman soldiers who were armed to the teeth. And had they slept on their watch, the penalty would have been death. Further, the tomb was sealed with the Roman seal. If you violated that, you had to answer to Rome, likely with your lives. And that seal was sacred to those Roman soldiers. And there was a stone so heavy that we're told in one of the Gospels, three of the women despaired of moving it. And if even there were enough disciples to move the stone, you mean to say that they moved it without awakening the sleeping soldiers? Not likely. And there are the grave clothes. Eight feet of linen, about a hundred pounds of sticky spices, according to the custom, wrapped tightly in that linen, and yet the grave clothes were left there and the body was removed. There was a physical impossibility of the disciples stealing the body And consider the moral impossibility. If they stole the body and then later lied about it, oh, he's been raised from the dead. Consider the moral impossibility of that. Their Lord was a paragon of truthfulness, wasn't he? He is, God is the God of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the embodiment of truth and truthfulness. His worst enemies were the hypocrites. He hated hypocrisy. Jesus exuded truthfulness because He's God who is true. And His ethic is all about truthfulness, isn't it? Christians are the most honest people in the world, aren't you? Because you fear God. You fear God more than you fear man. And you're not going to tell lies in order to get your way or to protect yourself because you fear God. Christians are truth speakers because their Savior is the truth. And you mean to say that these disciples, immersed in the ethic of Jesus, who was incarnate truth, perpetrated this lie? There's a moral impossibility there. And finally, there's a psychological impossibility Remember their state when Jesus was crucified. They were a downcast bunch of men. They were fearful. They were discouraged. They were cowardly. They fled. The scene when Jesus was arrested, not only did they not have the moral motivation, they did not have the strength of will. They did not have the courage. Psychologically, it was impossible for them to have stolen the body of Jesus. Nobody stole the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea didn't move it. The Jewish authorities didn't move it. The Roman authorities didn't move it. The disciples certainly didn't move the body. Ah, but here's another possibility. That Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but He was revived in the cool of the tomb. This this theory was revived several decades ago when I was a young Christian, I think in the 1970s. I think it was a Jewish rabbi who came up with this swoon theory. Listen to Frank Morrison to try to even think of what would happen to an utterly collapsed constitution, bleeding from five torn and untended wounds, lying on the cold slab of a tomb in April without human succor of any kind, is to realize the unreason of the argument, the, the irrationality of the argument that Jesus really was revived in the tomb. He didn't really die on the cross. Then he quotes a certain critic of this idea by the name of Strauss as saying this, It is impossible that a being who had stolen half-dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death in the grave and the prince of life. No, friends, Jesus died at the cross. He didn't swoon and revive in the tomb. Well, let's consider again in the direction of the indisputable fact of the resurrection some unexplainable facts. Why is there a gap between the event of the death of Jesus and the announcement of his resurrection or the event of the supposed resurrection and the announcement of it? Seven weeks elapsed from the time he was raised to the time they announced his resurrection, right? He was crucified and buried at the time of the Passover. Then Pentecost, seven weeks later, was the event when they first announced his resurrection, Peter preaching his Pentecost sermon. They allowed seven weeks to elapse between the supposed event of the resurrection and the first proclamation of it. Now, that does not add to the credibility of the story if they made it up. If it's a fable, if it's a fabrication, you can make up whatever you want. You would have expected that they would have announced the resurrection right after the supposed event. But seven weeks go by. That would lead to a a lack of credibility. Why did that seven weeks go by? Because during that time, Jesus was appearing to his disciples. He was teaching them. He was equipping them for the coming of the Spirit and their worldwide mission. There was a reason but that seven week gap does not add credibility to um, a story that has been made up. But it does comport with reality. Another unexplainable fact why was there such a rapid growth of converts? Three thousand on the day of Pentecost, the first announcement of the resurrection. Acts chapter two. Three thousand Jews are converted. A little while later, two thousand more. Just the men. Five thousand. The Jews, friends, were a very and are a very logical people. Right? They're not going to be convinced the resurrection of true based on emotion. They want facts. They want some rational explanation. And the leaders of Judaism, the priests, were adamantly denying that this imposter had been raised from the dead. So here come the disciples back into Jerusalem seven weeks later, and they begin to proclaim that their leader, Jesus, is alive. And the tomb was only a short distance away. Listen again to Morrison's eloquent language. But history decrees That this controversy about the resurrection, true or not, had to be fought out in Jerusalem, where no real illusions could prevail, where anybody could go and see the tomb between supper and bedtime, and where an overwhelming body of official, authoritative, and conclusive witnesses existed. Yet it is in this center of solid and conservative realism that according to St. Luke, no fewer than 3,000 converts were made in one day increased shortly afterwards to 5,000. They brought this message to Jerusalem and carried it with inconceivable audacity into the most keenly intellectual center of Judea against the ablest dialecticians of the day or debaters or reasoners of the day. And in the face of every impediment, which is a brilliant and highly organized faction could devise. And they won. Within 20 years, the claim of these Galilean peasants had disrupted the Jewish church and impressed itself upon every town on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean from Caesarea to Troas. In less than 50 years, it had begun to threaten the peace of the Roman Empire. Why did it win? The Christian church drew its steadily mounting numbers not from the occasional visitors to the feasts but from the resident population of Jerusalem. You see what he's saying? This message took root and was believed not in some far off place like Galilee. They didn't go tens of miles away, hundreds of miles away and say, oh yeah, back there Jesus was raised from there. They proclaimed their message right there within several stone's throws of the tomb itself where it could have been refuted right in the midst of those Jewish leaders who wanted to refute the reality of it. That's where it took root. That's amazing. That's unexplainable, except for the truth of it. Why did the Jews fail to silence the disciples? Morrison again says, when we remember what certain highly placed personages in Jerusalem would almost certainly have given to have strangled this movement at its birth, but could not. How one desperate expedient after another was adopted to silence the apostles until the great persecution was tried and broken pieces in their hands. You see, when you realize all the people that wanted to kill this movement, then we begin to realize that behind all these subterfuges and makeshifts there must have stood a silent unanswerable fact. We realize also why neither Caiaphas nor Annas nor any recognized member of the Sadducean party whose prestige and personal repute was so deeply affronted and outraged by the new doctrine they didn't believe in resurrection ever took the obvious shortcut out of their difficulties. If the body of Jesus still lay in the tomb where Joseph had deposited it, why did they not say so? A cold and dispassionate statement of the real facts issued by someone in authority and publicly exhibited in the temple precinct would have been like a dousing of water upon the kindling fire of the Christian heresy. Apparently they did nothing of the kind for the reason that they could not We are nowhere told that any responsible person asserted that the body of Jesus was still in the tomb. Friends, they could have killed it. They could have killed Christianity in the womb. Just produce the body of Jesus. Just point to an occupied tomb and it's over. And they had every motivation to do that. But they couldn't do it because they couldn't account for the empty tomb. And so here are some stubborn facts of history that cannot be accounted for except for a real and historical resurrection. Why the seven-week wait between the supposed resurrection and the announcement of it? That doesn't um, lend itself to a, a, a story you make up and want people to believe. How could so many right there in Jerusalem have been convinced of something that could have been so easily disproven? Why did the authorities allow this what was an objectionable, and obnoxious, heretical movement? Why did they allow it to have such traction when they could have killed it in the womb by simply producing the body of Jesus? Finally, in dis- proving the indisputable fact of the resurrection, we have the unfathomably fervent zeal. Unfathomably fervent zeal. The rise and exponential growth of the Christian church in the first century demands an explanation. Again, Frank Morrison eloquently says, only from an intensely heated center of burning zeal could this vast field of lava have been thrown out from a tiny country like Palestine to the limits of the Roman world. He compares the Christian church to a lava flow coming down from the mountain, destroying everything in its path. Christianity was like a lava flow. They couldn't stop it. And there had to be something of a volcano It takes a volcano to produce that lava. Something of some burning zeal had to produce this movement which flowed like lava over the then-known world. Yet the original material from which we have to derive this dynamic force consists of, okay, so what did God have to work with? What was the, the burning, the intensely heated center of burning zeal that produces lava flow of growth of Christianity? He said... The original material from which we have to derive this dynamic force consists of an habitual doubter like Thomas, a rather weak fisherman like Peter, a gentle dreamer like John, a practical tax gatherer like like Matthew, a few seafaring men like Andrew and Nathaniel, the inevitable women, and at most two or three others. Does this rather heterogeneous body of simple folk reeling under the shock of the crucifixion, the utter degradation and death of their leader looked like the driving force we require. Something came into the lives of these very simple and ordinary people which transformed them. You see what he's saying? Very eloquent language, maybe a little lofty. We're not used to talking that way. But he's saying this was a lava flow. This was unstoppable. Some volcano had to give birth to this. Some burning zeal, where'd it come from? A bunch of peasants, a bunch of nobodies. They caused this great lava flow of the growth of Christianity. And let's consider three particular men and then we'll be finished. First of all, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are converted under the preaching of Peter, who emerged as the leader and the chief spokesman of the apostles. He preaches in such a courageous way in that sermon. And he's preaching to 3,000 people, including leaders who had crucified his Lord and had the power to kill him. And yet Peter talks about this Jesus, whom second person plural, no doubt with his finger, you put to death, but God raised up. What audacity, what courage, what boldness. But only a few weeks earlier, where do we find Peter? Cowering before a servant girl, denying with a curse that he even knew Jesus. And now he's boldly proclaiming before thousands of people that it's a fact that he was raised from the dead and you're responsible for his death. What accounted for that? Even in chapter 4, when Peter and John come before the Sanhedrin, we're told by Luke in Acts 4, when they beheld the boldness of Peter and John, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. How do you account for the change in Peter except that he was convinced that he had seen Jesus alive after he was dead and buried? And then we have James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we read, even his brothers were not believing in him. And if you recall back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is out there intensely ministering. And we read that when his own kinsmen heard, they went out to take custody of him, for they they were saying he has lost his senses. Likely his mother and his brothers were out there. They thought Jesus was crazy. He's gone off the deep end. We need to get him to Shady Acres Rest Home. right? That's the mindset of his brothers back then during his ministry. But fast forward. On the day of Pentecost, there are 120 gathered to pray in that upper room when the Holy Spirit fell. Who were they? Well, it says in Acts chapter 1, 13, the 11 apostles along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. His brothers were among the 120 waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall. They were among those who proclaimed the Gospel in tongues on the day of Pentecost. And then in about 36 A.D., Saul of Tarsus is converted. And he tells the story of his early days in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. He says, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the... Uh, any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the former unbeliever in Jesus, became a leader in the New Testament church. When Peter was released from prison in Acts 12, he says, report these things to James and the brethren. James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, when they were deciding whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, James gives a final authoritative word. He says, brethren, listen to me. And he gives a conclusive word showing, no, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved. James was a leader in the New Testament church. In Acts 21, 18, Paul goes to Jerusalem and is obliged to report, it, uh, report to the leadership there. We read, and the following day, Paul went uh, in with us to James and all the elders James, the half-brother of Jesus, formerly an unbeliever in Jesus, formerly thought he was crazy needed to go to a rest home, becomes a leader in the New Testament church. And not only that, but the Jewish historian Josephus records the end of the life of James. Josephus writes, Festus was now dead and Albinus was, was but upon the road. So he, Annas the high priest, assembled the Sanhedrin Of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. It appears from reliable church history that the half brother of Jesus, James, met his death by stoning because he believed in Jesus. And the question is, what transformed James from a scoffing unbeliever in his brother Jesus to a leader in the New Testament church and a martyr for his cause? Well, there's one other, one other statement about James in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is giving a list of those to whom Jesus appeared, resurrected, including 500, most of whom are still alive, he says. It says, then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. James saw his half-brother, Jesus, risen from the dead. And he knew, not only was it right to live for him, it was safe to die for him. And then finally, Saul of Tarsus. The well-known story, the apostle Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, proud of his Jewish heritage. He was zealous for the traditions of Judaism. He was a, a leading student of the, uh, the, um, the Rabbi Gamaliel. He was at the head of his class. And when this Jewish sect of the way began, Saul had to make a decision. Was he going to side with his colleagues and the other Jewish leaders that this was a hoax, this way? Or was he to join the movement? Well, as you know, he sided with his colleagues. And he became one of the most rabid persecutors of the, the early Christian church, determined to exterminate every last believer of that movement. Frank Morrison, in one final quote, eloquently asks the question, why should a man of this tough breed and of this admittedly sane and virile mental caliber be uprooted in an instant from his cherished beliefs and swept like chaff before the wind into the dogmatic camp of his most hated enemies. It is not the immediate effects of the conversion with which we are concerned, though these are noteworthy. But how did this reorientation of a man's entire presupposition survive the three years solitary communion in in Arabia and the nine years patient waiting in Tarsus And all the bitter persecutions of the great missions. Why was one of the greatest intellects of the ages brought over and fixed in an instant of time. From one pole of dogmatic belief to another. And then he gives the answer with similar eloquence. When Saul was really convinced that he had seen the risen Jesus. The immense and overpowering significance of the empty tomb swept for the first time into his mind. He saw that if the disciples were not deceivers, they were then right. He realized why you could not associate a martyrdom so glorious as that of Stephen with a vulgar deception involving connivance with the abduction of a corpse. The vacancy of the tomb was an historic fact, fixed and unalterable. It was never shaken throughout St. Paul's lifetime and in the writer's judgment It remains unshaken to this day. The fact is, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is one of the most established facts of human history. And aren't you glad? Because everything depends upon it. If Jesus is not risen, you are not forgiven. Whatever power has been at work in you is just the power of self-will. And you have no promised future of a glorious resurrection body on a renovated earth. If Jesus is truly risen, your sins are forgiven. You are justified, declared righteous in God's sight based on His finished work. And you have an explanation for the amazing changes that have taken place in you. Being delivered from the dominion of sin and progressively growing away from sin and into more holiness. You have an explanation. It's the... Power of that raised Jesus that's at work in you. And you have the sure promise that even as Jesus lives with a resurrected body, you will live too with Him on a renovated earth. Hallelujah. He is risen. It is a fact of history. God does not ask Christians to shelve our minds, but to fully engage them and embrace the fact that this is indeed true. All our eggs are in that basket. All our hope is in that it is not a fool's errand, brothers and sisters. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, all the evidence in the world will not convince you. All of the historical evidence, all of the psychological evidence will not convince you to believe in Jesus. Why not? Because there were many in Jesus' own day who saw his miracles with their own eyes. Some who even were able to recognize a man who had been dead four days, Lazarus, and now he's alive. And yet they would not believe. The evidence alone will not convince you. What will convince you to believe in Jesus? You have to believe that you've been made by a personal God who made you in His image and made you for Himself. And you have to believe that historically the human race fell into sin and that you are part of a human race that is in rebellion against God. You've turned your back on God and you've turned to your own selfish way. And you need to be convinced of the fact that I need to be released from this life of rebellion and independence from God. I need to be made right with God. I need to be forgiven. I've got this guilt that plagues me. I've got these habits that enslave me. I've got to be free. And then you've got to believe that there is but one Savior who can deliver you, who can forgive you and who can deliver you. And the proof of it is that He was raised from the dead. Only then will you believe in Jesus. But may you, by grace, believe in Him. Let's pray and then we'll sing one final hymn. Oh, our Father, we have rehearsed these things so many times, but they never cease to reinforce our faith that we are not on a fool's errand in living and even being willing to die for Your Son and this Gospel. Thank You that You've given such certain proof historically that he is a risen Savior. But even apart from that, Lord, we cannot deny, those of us who are yours, that something happened to us that we cannot explain except the fact that he is a living, powerful Savior who has intervened in our lives and redeemed us. How we thank you. Receive our praise in Jesus' name.